0: to another episode of our podcast. Let's talk Tridelta. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mindy Tucker, Tridelta's VP of Marketing and Communications, and managing editor of the award-winning Trident magazine. The events of the last few months have caused us as an organization to listen and learn about the systemic racism that exists in our society, in Greek life, and within our organization. We've had some profound conversations and taken action to identify the ways in which Tridelta can work. To dismantle racism and educate our members. Today's podcast is going to continue our Lead Now conversations about racism. We're talking to sisters of color, tackling some important topics for Delta, asking some of the difficult questions, and hearing their perspectives. Today, I'm so pleased to share with you my conversation with Crystal Clark. I know you'll enjoy getting to know our sister, Crystal, and here is our conversation. Crystal Clark thank you so much for joining us today so happy to have you with us I know a lot about you I know that there's so much we're going to talk about today but I'm so excited for our sisters to get to know more about you and the work that you do Um, I know you're gonna have a lot of great things to share with us today so I'm really excited to jump into this so thank you for joining us for this conversation thank
1: you for having me excited to be here
0: One of the things we all know about you is that you are one of the busiest women in student affairs. You do a lot of work in higher ed, and I think it'd be interesting if you shared with everybody kind of how you got into that work and what you love about
1: it and what you do. So um, I did my graduate work at University of Maryland College Park, and my graduate assistantship there was in fraternity and sorority life. And the main part of that role was to be a live-in staff member at Pi Kappa Alpha Fraternity. Um, with my 34 men of Pike. Um, and so I lived there for those two years with them and also did other projects like advising Greek Homecoming and Greek Week. And so it's important to understand that I was unaffiliated when that work started. Right. You know, I rolled into student affairs as just, and I think this is a very cliche story for anyone in student affairs, I was just a very involved student leader. I loved. College didn't want to leave um, and needed to figure out. I may out. have
0: resembled that remark oh, right. at some point in time in my life. <laughs> right. Many, many months. Uh,
1: and, you know, had to figure out a way to sort of get paid to stay there because I could not afford to keep paying to be there. Um, And so I went to graduate school to figure out how to be one of those people that it really helped me as a first generation college student make my way through college. And so I went and took on this job of being a student affairs residential fellow in Greek life without having any fraternity or sorority experience whatsoever. Um, But I did have residential experience at the time and did that for two years, became very intrigued by the work, very interested in it saw that it was very challenging and there was a lot of work to be done. And so when it was time to find my first job postgraduate school, I had the opportunity to go work at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, served four years there as the program coordinator of fraternity and sorority life, primarily as the Panhellenic advisor. And then I found my way to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, being the associate director of Greek life with my primary responsibility also being working with the Panhellenic Association. So that's like... How the career sort of happened, and how I find myself in student affairs today. Greek life was fantastic to do full time for a while, um, and then I just needed to sort of change directions in my student affairs life. Yeah, and now I get to do leadership development work, which has been a core passion of mine for a long time.
0: I'm curious, what did you see in the Greek community and in Greek life that you found like so valuable to those students, or so intriguing for you that you wanted to devote time to? Supporting it.
1: Well, one, it was never boring. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The second thing is that when you're working within a fraternity and sorority community, you're kind of doing every job in student affairs. So you're doing the housing part. You're doing the judicial part. You're doing sort of the community building and programming part. You're doing the service part. You're doing everything that makes sort of student life exists in this one like microcosm. And so you were able to get a lot of different experiences just by being a part of that professionally. And I also feel like the students being a part of those organizations, they were able to have sort of a, a variety of experiences within that one organization um, that I think differs in other student organizations on campus. But certainly the relationships that they were building, you know, being an officer in a fraternity or sorority, it's a big job. Right. And so if you really take that seriously and you really get into it and you sort of own the leadership skills that you're getting from that, I mean, you have, you're, you're super marketable if you can really communicate that well. Um, and so that was something else that I thought was just really valuable. Obviously, the service work that people are doing, the philanthropy work is very important. But, you know, I found myself having some really deep conversations with those men while living with them. Um, And I know people are always like, you should write a book. And I would never do that um, because I care deeply about those men and still know them. For me, it was just about those moments where we had some really real conversations with each other and I could see them growing with each other um, in that environment. Let's
0: shift a little bit to Tri-Delta now. Yeah. Uh, do, you have a, do you have an interesting journey of how you ended up in our neighborhood? <laughs> um, yeah. Why don't you first talk about your undergrad experience at William & Mary mm-hmm. and sort of the navigating the decision of whether or not to join a
1: sorority there? Yeah. So I went to College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. It's about an hour away from my hometown and loved my entire four years there. Like it was the perfect place for me. I'm a, like I said, I'm a first-generation college student. No one in my family belongs to any Greek-lettered organization. Like, no one. So I didn't have that sort of cultural capital of understanding what that meant or what that looked like or how to do that. None of that happened. There were no legacies, nothing of that nature. Um, And so I went into college pretty open-minded, you know, about where I would join up or if I would do it at all. And I remember (laughs) this is, I remember um, Anne Arsenault, still works there. She's a director of student leadership development now, but back then she was a director of Greek life. And I wrote Anne an email (laughs) when I was, I guess, 17 years old, because at that point they sent you a bunch of literature in the mail. Right. So I got sort of like the Greek guide in the mail. Right. And I was looking through it and I wrote her and I honestly asked her point blank, do these organizations allow black women? Like that was my question. And it was a very nice email, but now I think, wow, I really had some guts when I was seventeen to, to email this adult and say, like, what is going on here? Okay. You know. Uh, and I think I even listed the ones that I wanted to join. Like, you know, you're seventeen. Like, you're just, you know, whatever. That's great. And uh, <laughs> she wrote back a really nice email. You know, that was like, yes, everyone's welcoming. We love for you to join. You know, a great email. And so when I arrived at campus, I signed up for paneling recruitment um, and I paid my fee and I filled out my form and was assigned to, uh, I guess maybe they were row gammas back then. Something yeah, like that. Like that. Mm-hmm. Went to my first row gamma meeting, met my group and realized very quickly that I was out of my death, like that I had stepped into something that was super far away from my lived experience and my perspective. And I think that was in things that are superficial, but unfortunately deemed important sometimes in the sorority experience, especially recruitment. I didn't have the clothes. Like I didn't have the clothes that everyone was wearing. Like I didn't know who Lily Pulitzer was, did not have a Vera Bradley bag. My, the collar on my polo was not popped. Like none of that was happening. And so, when they sort of listed out what you were supposed to wear every day, I was like, I have Timberland boots and I have like oversized Nautica and Tommy Hilfiger and I have some American Eagle. I don't have all these things that you're asking me to wear. Like so each I was day like, of recruitment, they wanted you to wear a certain clothes. Right. You know, they sort of put out like, here's what you wear. You wear your snappy casual and like your sundress and your pearls. And, you know, at the time, everyone had on Lily. And I was like, what is this? And so I immediately thought, OK, mm, something's not working for yeah. me here. Yeah. And then, you know, it was once I found out how much it cost, I was like, Ooh, OK, how am I going to ask my family for this money? Right. Because I come from a single parent family, uh, a lower middle class socioeconomic status. And, you know, we had already sort of put all of our resources to work, just getting me there. Right. So to ask them for now hundreds, if not thousands of more dollars for an organization, I was like, "Ooh." we'll see how I, how, how can I have this conversation? I was the only woman of color in my row gamma group. And then the school had sort of made a decision, I guess. And now that I work in higher ed, I understand how we can work in silos and not communicate well. So the school had decided to plan, um, it was black student alumni day. And it was at the same time as the first round of formal recruitment. So in doing that, you kind of had to choose Am I going to go and be with my black peers at this programming for black students? Or am I going to go through the first round of recruitment? You couldn't do both effectively. You couldn't, you know, I reached out to my row gamma <laughs> and she was pretty ill-equipped to have that conversation with me. So I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Cause then I'm sort of wrestling with my identities, right? I'm 17 right. years old. I'm wrestling with my identities I'm not sure which way to go. What's going to be the consequences if I choose one over the other? Am I ever going to be able to go through sorority recruitment again? Well, they say it's harder once you get older. Am I going to alienate my Black peers by not going to this event because all of us were going? So you start wrestling. And I didn't really feel at the time that there was anyone who was able to help me make that decision. And so I, I think I kind of freaked her out. <laughs> And eventually I just decided, she said to me, like, we can put you on a special schedule. And I said, you know what? I stick out like a sore thumb already. I yeah. can't show up late or leave early. Like I can't add that to the mix. And so I just dropped out, which I think relieved her because I think she was like, I don't know what to do with this. And I went to, you know, Black Student Alumni Day or whatever the event was and, and, and did not go Panhellenic in undergrad.
0: You know what Um, I find so interesting about all that is it wasn't just one thing and it wasn't all based on race or it was like so many things from so many different directions were Mm -hmm. coming at you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find that so interesting just to hear your perspective on that now. And you could connect them all to race, but they don't necessarily all
1: directly, you know, go there. We, it was class identity, right? It was, a lot of that is impacted because I am a first generation student. So I, no one can help me navigate it. You know, I didn't have any letters of recommendation. I didn't know any women that were in MPC organizations when I was okay. growing up. So all those things really affected, you know, the training of the leaders who are in charge of the recruitment process. Like your row is like your touch point, right? And she was not equipped to have those conversations. And so- in so many ways it layered up to not happen. Yeah. Um and that so I, you know, I went through undergrad unaffiliated. That's how it happened.
0: Yeah. yeah. So fast forward through fast your forward. professional connections, <laughs> you ended up running across some tri deltas. How did you <laughs> how did you make your way into running across you know, some I love that you're an honor I love telling the honor initiation story. Um so we'll get to that. But I'm just wondering like how that came about
1: and you know, I, um, I had met Susan Woda at Maryland. We were at Maryland at the same time. She One was of living in the Delta house.
0: Huh? What'd you One say? One of our newest board members.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we met at Maryland. And then I went on to obviously work at Duke and became very involved in the Association of Fraternity and Sorority Advisors. I, I guess I met Jason <laughs> through a friend from Maryland, our friend Darren. So Jason, who's on the staff. Is, yes, absolutely. You know, I just, I did my work as an unaffiliated person in fraternity and fraternity life like anybody else would. And we had actually just did a session at the annual meeting on what it was like to be an unaffiliated fraternity and fraternity advisor. Like there were three of us who did it. I guess Tridelto was like, we like her. And so, <laughs> you guess, I guess, of um, <laughs> But, but Trident, oddly enough, you know, writing my master's paper, I had used an issue of the Trident to write that because I wrote it on racial identity. Um, and women who are Latinx and, and, and Black, you know, at this time, we would say BIPOC. Um, at that time, we weren't using that acronym. Right. Um, who, and their racial identity development after joining predominantly white Greek organizations. And the Trident had done a really great article on uh, just sort of the racial history of tri Right. And I, I carried that around with me, I think, for like a year trying to write that paper. And then when I went to IFI, which is the Interfraternal Institute, tri was the one who paid my scholarship to go. Um, so tri kept coming back up in my life in some way, shape, or form. And um, I was sitting at work one day. I think it was a Wednesday. It was raining outside. And <laughs> It was Susan Alota on the other end of the line. I hadn't heard from from Swota in a long time, and um, it was her sort of offering this, this invitation, this bid to become an honor initiative Tri-Delta, which I didn't know was a thing. But I was super excited about it and, and proud that Tri-Delta had seen something in me that would want to invite me to be a part of the sisterhood.
0: So I want to just illuminate a little bit for people who are watching and listening and they're like, honor initiation, what is this? And I do love that we do have this opportunity to enter our sisterhood after you've completed your collegiate years and Mm -hmm. you create relationships, you find that you share our values and we welcome you in as a sister. And it's a cool thing that we do. I think we're probably going to start doing that a lot more in the future. And um, we should, I think we should we have some amazing women case in point here um, mm-hmm. that we've welcomed into sisterhood in that manner, so yeah, I'm glad to have a great example to talk about <laughs> on that front. I'm curious what your experience has been inside Delta as a black woman. Uh, it's been fine, I think so
1: <laughs> <laughs> I um. So I think, first of all, as an honor initiate, it was a lot easier for me to be connected to Tridelta and to get involved immediately because I was already in student affairs. Okay. So that was a really great, right. like I already knew the chapters that were in. I was in, you know, the RDU area at the time, Raleigh-Durham. So I knew all the schools there. I knew all the chapters. I knew all the people. So it was very easy for me to get involved in Tridelta that way. I think for me... So here's the thing about me personally as a black woman, this is me. I knew upon entering Tri-Delta and upon entering any space where I don't see enough of people that look like me or that share my social identities, that my job is to be a presence that creates invitation for others, right? So I don't enter any space without realizing that within that space, I may have to do some work Um, because if I find it to be a beneficial space... Um, but I find to be a space that is lacking for BIPOC women, then I, for me, it's important for me to step up and figure out how do I make this better? How do I make this welcoming? How do I make this more inclusive? How do I make this opportunity better for other people? I think the biggest moment that I had to do that in Tridelsa is when we had the first, I guess at that time it was an innovation Team on diversity and inclusion. Um, and that was my first invitation sort of in to really do some work in that area of the organization. You said um, initiation team? Innovation team. Oh, that's what innovation. it was called. Innovation okay. team. You're kind of cut out. So I wanted to make sure I got that yeah. right. So that was the first time where I was like, okay, now I get to really sort of be a part of a, a committee of people who have an interest in what I always have an interest in, which is, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Right. And making these environments better for, for anyone of any right. social identity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious as you, you know, as
0: you guide students as, first of all, I want to go back to one thing. I think I'd love hearing you say, like, I know when I step into some of these places, like, I know the work I'm going to have to do. How does that feel? Like, is that a burden? Is that, I mean, yes and no, that's probably the answer to that question. I don't know. Uh, I'm just wondering, like as a, just as yeah. a woman stepping into a place, yeah. like how does that feel when you carry that in knowing you're going to have to navigate some of that?
1: You know, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of, oh, not again. Here comes the stress and the anxiety and, and do these people really believe what I believe? And are they really open for change? And Am I just going to be seen as like the Black woman in the room who's always talking about identity, right? And are they going to get tired of that and then maybe not want me around anymore? Um, so there's that. And then the other is that, you know, I, I think for me as someone who <laughs> enjoys a challenge, <laughs> it, there there's a sense of, oh, maybe we can do some great things here and maybe right. we can create some change here. You know, I always point people towards um, um, Shonda Rhimes' book, The Year of Yes, if you like scandal or how to get away with murder or anything like that. She d- writes all those shows, but she has this concept called FOD, F-O-D, being first, only and different. And it's really tricky for a FOD because there's pride in that and there's excitement in that. But then there's also the oh, goodness that goes with it. I, I, this is stressful. This is pressure. Um, I have to make sure I don't mess this up for other people who share my identities. So it's, it's both sides of the coin. Interesting. No, that's a good theory. Um, I like that FOD. Yeah.
0: Shonda yeah, Rhimes, not mine. Shonda. I know. I'm going to find that book. I love her. It's too. great. I, I want to think about, um, so as you saw Greek experiences over time in your job, um, mm-hmm. have you, as you moved into Tri-Delta and volunteered in a variety of capacities for us, what, what areas do you see where we really need to put our attention as we're moving forward and <laughs> trying to eliminate systemic racism, no. um, creating inclusion, <laughs> thinking through equity? I know we could probably have this conversation for hours, oh but I'm curious, like off the top of your head, like where are some of the, the biggest, where are some of the biggest areas where our organizations mm-hmm. need to focus?
1: Listen, Formal recruitment is like ground zero for implicit bias. Like it's just, yeah. Like if you want to do a case study for how unconscious bias works, set up NPC formal recruitment, right? It is a lot of people with little information and no time. And the process is not built for everyone. <laughs> there are yeah. a lot of women who will just never shine in that process. Never. Right. And when you're having to make very, very quick decisions about people, and you're just using schemas that are in your head. you will close your eyes and you will have an ideal picture of what your sister should look like or who your sister should be and most of the time you're reproducing yourself and so that we we've got to figure out that process like we have to we we have to <laughs> because it is it is not helping to diversify our chapters in any way, shape, or form. I think it makes
0: sense that that would be ground zero. That is the, I mean, that's the point at which you enter. Like, that's how we choose our members. That's how membership begins in all these organizations. So um, I think it makes sense that you've sort of put the emphasis there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you have taken on a new role with MPP. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you are chairing the Access and Equity Advisory Committee for mm-hmm. National Payment Limit Council. I'm curious what your charge is there and how you see that work progressing.
1: Yeah, so a lot, we have sort of a three-pronged approach going on there, but, but our biggest role is to, you know, as we sort of just talked about, what are those barriers to membership? What is keeping women from feeling as if they can become a part of our organizations and the deeper level is then what's keeping them from feeling like they can thrive in our organizations, right? Because we have women who join, who are from all social identities, right? and they're not able to thrive in those environments. Some of them are, but not all of them, right? And they're not able to feel that sense of inclusion, which is what we want, right? That goal. That, that's part of it. So we really are, are charged to look at the policies, the practices, and behaviors of MPC um, that MPC has, as far as you know, our unanimous agreements but also helping our member organizations understand what there could be about their policies and practices and procedures that could be creating those barriers. Um, We also need to look at, you know, what is the staffing and volunteer structure for our MPC organizations? How can we help make the, the people who work in and lead and volunteer for our organizations, how can we help create diversity, equity, and inclusion there? right? And then we also just want to think about how can we, (laughs) how do we filter all of this down through our member organizations well and effectively, right? So we should be doing this together and not like separately. And what I have learned about our organizations is that we have to do everything kind of almost at the same time or together or it will never happen, right? And especially at the campus level, we all have to flip the switch at the same time,
0: I think that's, I can see why that's, especially with recruitment. I mean, you can't, we're all involved in that and it affects all of that. That decision has to be made by
1: everybody and done at the same time. That makes sense. Um, So we've we've got to, there's a few things there and and it's all going to be challenging work because there's a lot of history. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of, we've always done it this way. mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of people who are afraid of change. There's people who don't believe that we need to change. Right. Um, and so we have to take all of that into account with the serious understanding that if we don't change, we are really threatening the relevance and the outright existence of our organizations. And we're also just not on the right side of history, like pull it together. You know, like we're not, we're not doing the right, humane, best thing. So there's so many layers there that, that you know, we have to work
0: And every organization is different. And like, I know the conversation going on inside Tri Delta, but I can't, you know, I don't know the conversation going on in all these other organizations. And I'm sure they're all at different places with different people and different beliefs about how we go forward. And so I'm glad you're doing that job. (laughs) I'm glad that uh, it's you. I think you're going to do a great job. I think you bring a lot of wisdom and expertise to that role.
1: So thank you for saying yes to it. Yeah, we have a great yeah. team of, of also 12 other people who come from a variety of backgrounds and affiliations. And I think it's going to be a great group.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I want to shift now into um, talking specifically about how TriDelta has responded in recent months. Yeah. Um, calling our, we're calling our response Lead Now feeling like this is our opportunity to step up and lead right now. We, as you know, we have a plan. It's ever evolving. It will, yes. I don't know that it will ever be complete. Um, <laughs> and we we took a lot of action this summer, um, or we took our first actions this summer at convention and we're moving forward. I want to, I want to sort of understand from your perspective first, just we've talked about this a little bit, but why, why do we as Tri Delta need to act and do something right now?
1: Yeah, I mean... Now is great. Forever is is really important. Um, I think because the, the, the work is never done. Like you never arrive. And I think we have to understand that. So everyone who's creating committees right now or making all these changes, this isn't just for like a year period. Like this has to stay in place. You know, I think that we've all been pushed to a sense of urgency. I think that people were doing things in small drips, you know, a meeting here, a conversation here, a policy there, and I think that everything that's been happening, you know, with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and all of those people that that we've lost, right, at, at the hands of uh, of people who, you know, are who hold some racist beliefs, right, um, and who are not really um, really not upholding a, a they're not being kind of liked to all, right, and so right. we yeah. have been pushed to a point where we now need to, there's just been a reckoning, I think, of every level, of every industry, of every organization. You know, it doesn't matter what you're a part of. It's now about you have to look inside and say, what am I doing that's contributing to this happening, right? Or what am I doing that's contributing to possibly the development of people who would then go out and do something like this? And so I, I think that that now is, imperative. If you're not acting now, you probably just aren't ever going to act, right? Because this is a, this is the moment to do so. And I think, you know, our students are, they're not messing around. (laughs) They're at a point where it's like, they want to respond. They want to know what's going on. They want to fight. They want to protest. They, they, they want and are asking for that change. And as a member organization, we have to be willing to respond to that.
0: Yeah. I think one of the, one of the most, I think heartening things for me in my role, I spent a lot of time with our chapters that first couple of weeks helping them respond. Yeah. And, um, their statements were so thoughtful and they were just, there was never a question. They just knew they were going to take action and say something and Mm -hmm. they just needed someone to help them get it over the line and get it out. I, I I mean, part of me was just felt better about how we, you know, the world in general yeah. at that time, because these, these younger people that are in our midst, mm-hmm. in our sisterhood and in lots of organizations really do, I think they're, they're in the right place mentally. They're mm-hmm. thinking the right way. They're, you know, um, there's a lot of energy there. You saw it at our convention. So many yeah. of these young women stepping up. and yeah, absolutely. Thinking out, mm-hmm. which was really great to see i so proud of so many of them. So in Tri Delta, we did take one, I think, important first step. And that is we made the decision to expand our board, our executive yes. board, and add two um, sisters of color. And so Tysley Williams and Emily Greer have now been yes. named and are on the board. For you, I know that's one thing. and I know that's mm-hmm. not a solution to everything. But right. can you talk a
1: little bit about how important that kind of representation is? Yeah. I mean, I think something that you'll hear, you know, I would say throughout any sort of marginalized or minoritized community is the saying that representation matters, right? It it matters that you have people there who are able to represent your particular social identity or identities. Part of it I think is, is that by having representation, you show other people that that is a possibility for them and that also that you are welcoming these identities into a leadership space. So it's hard to be what you can't see. So because to consistently see board photos of all, you know, lovely white women. Right. It does not help our BIPOC women say, huh, maybe I can be president of Tri Delta one day. Right. Because they're like that has I mean, that has never happened. So for a lot of them, it it would just feel like that is insurmountable. There's no way that's going to happen. So you sort of disinvite them from that process, losing talent, um, which you don't want to do. And then I think also it shows people what you value and what you care about, right? Like these women are here and they're doing this work. Oh, I didn't expect to see that in this sorority. Oh, wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is something that these people are willing to talk about and something to do. I think also when I think about those two sisters joined the board, Emily and Tysley, I I think now as a BIPOC woman in Tri-Delta and other women in Tri-Delta who were Black, Indigenous, women of color, We can feel sort of like, okay, whatever comes up in the board space, perhaps there will at least be two people there (laughs) who can maybe speak from my perspective or my perspective as a BIPOC woman. And perhaps that can reshape Tri-Delta, right? And some of the policies and the practices and some of the behaviors because the voices are in the room.
0: You know what's interesting about that? (laughs) When we made that announcement, some people's criticism was, oh, you're just putting them there to you know, it's like a token. It's like, they're just right. there for that voice or whatever. But I think people forget that our executive board covers a lot of everything. <laughs> right. And yeah. they make decisions about, you know, they, they advise our, our, our housing board. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, you know, they're in that they, they're making membership experience decisions. They're making mm-hmm. price decisions. Mm-hmm. They're making programmatic decisions. I mean, they're, across the board, they're Mm -hmm. speaking into a lot of different topics, which, and they're already a pretty diverse group, not of, not of color. Right, right, right. You can see, but I think it's, it's so important to, to have a diversity of views on all of those
1: topics. Oh yeah. It, It will make you a better organization. Like it does, it's been proven to make you a better organization. And I think, you know, you know, when people talk about tokenization, you know, tokenization is diversity without the inclusion piece. The fact that these women are included as full members of the board, they're not some sort of like ad hoc, alone in a corner. Here's Emily and Tys- Tysley and here's the rest of the board. Right. They're a part of all the conversations, right? And they are treated as full board members, right? right. And, and so I think it's important that people do know that. And they are ridiculously qualified, like Thank you crazy that. qualified to run this whole ship if need be. And people also need to know that. I've known Tysley for a few years now. And I mean, just bonkers, intelligent, crazy. Thank you for saying that. I agree. Absolutely. If anybody out there's interested, you should
0: go look on our website and check out the bios of these two women and all of our board members. I mean, they yes. are all they all bring a lot to the table. So absolutely I'm blessed to have all of them in our sisterhood. So I want to, you know, we're, we're having these conversations. I think this is great because it gives you and I a chance to get real and talk yeah, through yeah, yeah. These things that people aren't necessarily comfortable talking through. And one thing I think that this conversation that I know has been going on, I want to ask you about, cause it relates to the board decision. You know, that was our board, five white women making a decision to put a bylaw Whoa. amendment forward. And expand the board and bring in voices that they thought were valuable and needed going forward. Um, I think there was probably at some point some trepidation, like, can we as five white women make this decision right? Like, are we doing this right? What are we? I'd love to hear from you. I think sometimes we need a little, we need a little reminder that we do, that we can make change and we can take a step no matter our color on this. And sometimes maybe it's more important for us to make the step and make the
1: change. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Listen, that's the only way that MPC is going to make a lot of these changes in these chapters is if five white women say we're going to make a change, right? Because think about (laughs) think about the makeup there. You know what I mean? So that's it, you know? But but I also feel like, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, the the pressure or the burden that a a black person or a person of color can feel, having to feel like they're always the ones sort of doing that work and pulling people along. I think it's super important that white people understand their privilege, right? And the platform that they have and the ability that they have to say things and to talk to people and to use the relationships that they have to move things in a direction that it might take me 20 years to do. It might take you a year, right? There are people who are going to be way more apt to listen to you. We want to do this alongside each other. We want to do this with each other. Now, I do think it's important that people understand that you still should center the experiences of BIPOC people. Right. And and if you're going to to use knowledge from BIPOC people that you credit them. Right. But your voice saying it is important and it's necessary. I think the thing that we're seeing about these protests is that it's everybody. Everybody is, is out there protesting. Um, everyone is, is, is communicating with the authorities. Everyone is really out there saying we need change. And I think that that has to be the most effective way to do it. You know, I just, you know, I was talking to a student the other day and she was like, well, people told me I shouldn't say anything. And I'm like, no, no, no. You need to say something. You need to speak up. And here's the thing. You may mess up because we all will. You still need to embrace that that this is something that if you believe in it and you care about it, you've got to put yourself out there and say what you need to say. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than that. <laughs>
0: uh, you bring such a great perspective. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and I also want to make sure that people can find you. So, is there a yeah. way where people
1: can find and follow you and check out Crystal and what she's doing? Yeah, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it is crystal in clark. Um, N is my middle initial for Nicole. So Crystal N. Clark. You Crystal with a K. There. Yes, Crystal with a K, um, like the cheeseburgers, in uh, <laughs> <and> Clark. <laughs> That's my Instagram handle. And you can also find me on LinkedIn under Crystal N. Clark as well. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. And I'm just so grateful for you for giving us your time and being part of our sisterhood. Thank you so much, Mindy. Thanks. Thanks again to Crystal for being part of our Lead Now conversations. If you're interested in listening to other Lead Now conversations, you can go to tridelta.org slash lead now. That's lead with three D's, lead now. There you will also find information on our Lead Now plan and our progress on that. These are conversations that we have to continue. So look forward to more Lead Now conversations about racism from us in the future. We've created a space for members to share feedback and ideas as we collectively work through this Lead Now work and continue learning. So please feel free to email us at inclusion at trideltaeo.org. We hope all of our members and families are remaining safe and healthy out there. Please like and subscribe our podcast. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks for joining us today to talk Tridelta. Join us next time. Stay safe and bring you...